When we began studying through 1 Peter, back in September of last year, we did a survey of the book together, and I told you then that the point of the book is to stand fast in God's true grace, and that phrase is taken here from verse 12 of chapter 5. Sometimes when we've done one of those surveys and then come to the end of the book, I might adjust that uh, that phrase or that summary a little bit, but I think that as we've gone through the book, I think that one has been one that, that accurately summarizes what Peter has been trying to tell us from his letter. So how does the whole of what Peter has said lead to his conclusion here in chapter 5, verse 12? Well, there's a, a number of themes which support, I think, each part of this phrase. If we take the stand fast part, It's standing fast versus those who oppose the gospel with joy through persecution, looking to the end in which God's righteous judgment is revealed. And the part that is in God's true grace is God's true grace that comes through salvation and all of its blessings, that which leads to holy behavior, that which is carried out in love and unity with fellow believers. And so I want us to now go back over 1 Peter and explore what it means to stand fast in God's true grace. So first of all, stand fast. This word to stand is used in many places in the New Testament, but I think there are two parallels from Peter's own experience that uh, illustrate it perhaps the best. The first is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, when the Holy Spirit comes upon those in the crowd and everyone's whispering, what's going on? What's happening? How are we supposed to think about it? We see in Acts 2.14, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them. This is a fascinating verse, I think, in light of Peter's experience. He goes from being this bold, brash, in-your-face sort of guy to being someone who is so timid and ashamed of his denying Christ that when Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me, Peter? He won't look Jesus in the eyes. He just sort of looks down at his feet and he says, Lord, you know that I love you. What takes him from being bold to being timid and ashamed of what he's done to this moment? It's God's power at work in his life. God said in Acts 1.8 that you are going to be my witnesses in all of these regions. And so when this moment comes, I think the Holy Spirit works in him and he stands up side by side with the rest of the apostles and the believers, the disciples there, and he declares what is true. We see this phrase again in Peter's experience in Acts chapter 5. And verse 12, where we see that, um, I'm sorry, Acts 5, verse 20, where an angel of the Lord appears to Peter and the other apostles in prison and says, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. So when Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 12, This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He's not saying in a theoretical sort of way something like, I don't know, the game of soccer is very enjoyable. Go have fun with it. He's saying experientially something more like, 
When I was in high school and I played soccer, I loved it, and here's all the great moments from it, I want you to experience it too. Now go do it. Right? But something far more important than sports or any other activity that we might pursue, this is the true grace of God, the only path to a relationship with God. He's saying, this is what God has given to you. Stand in it. Don't back down. Stand fast, first of all, with joy through persecution. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that joy through trials proves your faith. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is more perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stand fast with joy through persecution because joy through trials proves your faith. Stand fast with joy through persecution because God gets glory and is pleased in it. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent so that they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Or verse 19. If for the sake of conscience a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, this finds favor, in parentheses, I think we could say, with God. Chapter 3, verse 17. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. And then chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Make sure none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Joy through trials proves your faith. God gets glory and is pleased with when you stand fast with joy through persecution. When you do this, you follow the example of Christ. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When you and I respond with joy through persecution, standing there not as evildoers, but as those who are living in obedience to God, we don't respond with hatred toward those who are making the accusation, but we respond with the attitude of Jesus and of Stephen, Father, forgive them, a prayer which is answered in those who hear Jesus' words and who hear Stephen's words, the most notable example of which would be the Apostle Paul. God is honored and pleased. This follows the example of Jesus. What's the context of this standing fast with joy through persecution? It's supposed to characterize all of our relationships with people that you know, and with those that you don't. We see in chapter 2, verse 20, if you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. What credit is there? But when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Uh, that is set in the context of those who, uh, are in a, who are slaves. When your masters treat you badly and you respond with the attitude of Christ, this honors God. You're standing fast with joy through persecution. Wives with unbelieving husbands, 
when they treat you unreasonably or just behave generally as unbelievers and you respond with joy through persecution, God is honored. You follow the example of Christ. This proves your faith. When uh, you are under government, which does not always behave in a right way, doesn't always uphold the ideals that God established for them to do, and you respond to that persecution with joy, it proves your faith, it follows Jesus' example, God gets glory in it. So Peter says, stand fast with joy through persecution. But that standing fast in persecution isn't sort of this interminable loop that you just keep going and going and going. There's no end in sight. There's really no expectation that you'll ever be free of it. It has a goal in mind. Stand fast looking to God's righteous judgment in the end. Why? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 7, talk about a faith that leads to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, and that that faith will result in praise and glory and honor. What's he saying by that? Your faith will be vindicated. It will be shown to be true. It will be shown that you are on the right side of things. There's all sorts of people who talk for their various political agendas, particularly about being on the right side of history. Do you know who's on the right side of history? Those who stand with God. So, your faith will be vindicated when you live life standing fast, looking to God's righteous judgment in the end. This is important because Peter makes it clear that unbelievers will be punished. Chapter 2, verse 7, This precious value is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. If we consider ourselves to be part of those who are righteous, but in fact find ourselves to be among those who are disobedient to God, how, how terrible of a realization to have at that final moment. And so the standing fast is not just keep going. It is because you have a relationship with God, respond with joy through this comparatively brief period of persecution because there is a day coming in which God will return to punish evildoers to reward the righteous as he manifests his righteous judgment. We also see this in chapter 4, verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What are we supposed to do? How can we be ready for such a day? Because if it's possible for us to be, de be deceived about where we stand before God, and if it is possible for uh, us to be potentially just wasting our lives and all those sorts of things, what is sort of the safeguard against that so that we're ready for that day so we're not caught off guard? It's chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Here's how you lived before. Complete, abandoned, lack of self-control, pursuing whatever pleased you. You spent enough of your life, you've wasted enough of your life, you've thrown away enough of your life living that way. Now that you know Jesus, you are freed from being enslaved to all of those things and you no longer need to pursue them. So instead, be disciplined, sober, alert for the purpose of prayer and building your relationship with God because then you will not be caught off guard when the end comes. If you are anticipating God's judgment that it is righteous and that he wants you to live a particular way, think about the parable of the servants, right? The servants who knew their master was going to come back. They weren't just waiting around. They weren't just doing things half-heartedly. They were diligently saying, here's what he's given me, here's what I'm going to do with it. The one who said, well, I was afraid that you might not be happy with me when you came back. Was the master happy that he sat around and wasted his time and didn't do anything with what he was given? No. He was the one who was condemned. And what he had received was taken away and given to someone else. But the ones who diligently pursued it, it wasn't about how much they had. You could have 50 bucks, you could have $5 million. You could have, in your mind, very little talent or you could have an extraordinary amount of talent. The question is not, what do you have? The question is, what are you going to do with it for God? And you're not going to be using it very effectively for God unless you are sober and alert for the purpose of prayer, cultivating your relationship with God, no matter what your occupation is. So stand fast looking to God's righteous judgment in the end. And then, and I think the order of why I put it this way is important, because what is our attitude? It's joy. What's our pattern of life? It is with God's judgment in view. Then we come to against unbelievers who oppose the gospel. Why did I put that last? Well, because I think if we start with that without having had the proper attitude of joy and persecution and the idea that God is the one who's going to vindicate, what do we quickly turn to? I will have vengeance, I will fix this, I will hate them, I will be bitter, all of those sorts of things. But if we start out with joy and persecution, recognizing that God is the one who's going to distinguish between right and wrong and the end of all things, we can, in a proper way, stand fast against unbelievers who oppose the gospel. We recognize, I think we should, that unbelievers are going to mock you eventually no matter what you do. Notice what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 12. In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. He doesn't say, in the thing in which they might someday, possibly, but probably not, mock you. He says, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. 
If you follow after God, sooner or later, somebody is going to be like, you're an idiot. Why are you doing that? Why are you wasting your time going to church? Why are you wasting your money supporting missionaries? Why are you not enjoying all of these things that I get to enjoy? We talked about before that they're not actually as enjoyable as they seem and the end of them is destruction and all of that. But the more important reality is they are going to mock you because they don't understand why you wouldn't do all these things. We see this in chapter 4, verse 4. They're surprised that you do not run with them to the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. They speak badly of you. They wish harm upon you. Unbelievers will mock you no matter what you do, but a godly life silences their empty accusations. Chapter 2, verse 15. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Why would you waste your life doing all that? But then, we look at the examples of those who went before us, and when there were various plagues or wars or disasters, not always, there's been times when we've made poor decisions as the body of Christ, but Often, who was it that was willing to go do things when other people didn't want anything to do with them? It was people who knew and followed God. And there comes a point at which they stop mocking and they become curious. I don't understand why you would do this, but I can't really argue with the fact that what you're doing is a good thing. Jesus took this tactic with the, uh, the Pharisees. He heals the lame man on the Sabbath, and they say, you can't do that. Jesus said, was it a good thing or a bad thing? You want him to be lame the rest of his life? What I did was a good thing. So either you have to say that it was a bad thing and God didn't do it, which you clearly can't do because you're afraid of the people and you know that that's not what happened, or you have to acknowledge that what happened was a good thing. You may not like me, and clearly they didn't. They continued not liking him to the point of crucifying him. But you can't argue with the fact that what's happening is a good thing. If you and I live our lives in a way that honors God and is obedient to what he wants us to do, even if we get mocked, the accusations drop to the ground and people begin to realize there's no basis in them. We can, we can have people sort of scream at us all day that we're hateful and that we are selfish and that we think we're better than me and all that sort of thing, right? But if you and I go spend time with them, we treat them like human beings, the fact that we don't agree with sinful choices that they're making doesn't mean that we can, we can still love them and disagree with the way that they're living. And at a certain point, there comes a point where they can't deny that anymore. We see this in chapter 3, verse 16. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Here's where we tend to fall short. We say, they called me names. I'm going to call them names back. They responded in this evil way. I'm going to respond in this evil way back. Remember Christ's example, who being reviled did not revile in return. Not only do we have to experience the difficulty, respond with joy, and all of these other sorts of things, we have to have the response of Christ 
to these accusations and be living a way that's pleasing to God so that there's no basis for them, remembering that in the end, God has the last word. Chapter 4, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We all struggle with this. I was going to sell something to someone online and uh, we had a family event that went longer than anticipated and the lady got really mad at me and just basically lied about what had happened, posted this bad review, all this sort of thing. And it really bothered me. And it probably shouldn't have because I think she lives somewhere in Ohio. Never going to see her in all likelihood. Probably never going to hear from her again. But we care so much about what people think of us. Who has the last word? Whose opinion do we really need to be concerned about? God's opinion. And more than an opinion, the facts of what God knows, right? Uh, I don't remember who said this, so I can't really cite it, but someone said, reputation is how people see you, character is how God knows you are. You and I should be concerned about character, and we should be concerned about being pleasing to God, because there are always going to be people who misunderstand what we do, or falsely accuse us, or all of those sorts of things, but when we stand fast against unbelievers who oppose the gospel, remembering that the, the mocking is going to come no matter how hard we try to avoid it, a godly life silences their accusations, and in the end God has the last word, it enables us to walk through those things in a, in a way that pleases God. Somebody at work mocks you makes fun of the fact that you're a Christian. If you have in the back of your mind, Jesus was persecuted, why should I expect to escape what the one who is greater than me experienced? You're going to say, okay. Someone makes fun of you and you're like, oh, it's just ruined my day. You can have joy in the midst of persecution. Why? Because you know that God, whose opinion matters most, knows how you're living, and if you're living in a way that honors Him, you don't have to worry about what they think of you. Because you're not looking to their approval here and now, you're looking to God's righteous judgment down the road. And so when they treat you in a way that they're trying to force you to Mm. betray the gospel by the way you respond? Oh, you say you're a Christian. You say you love God. You say you're going to obey God. I'm just going to like do things to you every day so I can get you to swear, so I can get you to whatever. Sometimes people are that way. If by God's grace we are able to say no and respond properly in that situation... It shows that we have a relationship with God. God is honored. We have the privilege of walking in the footsteps of Christ. Peter says, stand fast. I think it's important to remember at this moment, when he says stand fast, he doesn't mean about everything. 
Or to put it bluntly, there are some hills that aren't worth dying on. You and I can easily have strong opinions about any number of things. I'll throw one out there that probably most of the rest of you don't care about. There was a time period, and I still have somewhat of this idea, where I, um, I was convinced that we needed to have more native plants from Michigan planted in areas around the city because they sustain wildlife and all those sorts of things. And that's true, but at the same time, is that the cause that I need to devote my life to? No. For a couple of reasons. One, our efforts and things like that don't last. I can think of an example. There, was, uh, there were several of us on this committee and uh, some person in the city didn't like one of the people on the committee, so we go and we plant this garden. This lady came along and ripped it all out, as best we can tell. So if I devote my life to, no, we're going to make this cause succeed of conservation or whatever else you want to call it, it's not ultimately going to last. Now, do we have parks because some people cared about those things back in the early 1900s? Yes. But unless you study in history class, most of you probably couldn't name the people that were connected with why we have these national parks. The work that Peter is calling us to is not some cause like that, something that might be true, might be good. He's certainly not calling us to things that are potentially false that we can get sucked into, like this is the thing that we have to convince everybody of. What is it that he's calling us to stand fast in, to point people to? God's true grace and salvation. Stand fast, secondly, in God's true grace. God's true grace comes to us in salvation. We see this in chapter 1, that this is all God's work. It says, You are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Blessed be the God and the Father who... According to his great mercy, calls us to be born again, to obtain an inheritance, who protects us by his power. Salvation is God's work in the planning and in the carrying out of it. Chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in this last, these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Salvation is all God's work. The planning from eternity past and the carrying out in this moment. Salvation is also both now and future. Though you have not seen him, chapter 1, verse 8, you love him. Though you do not see him now but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which have now been announced to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Salvation is both now and future. You and I can say we have eternal life, and you and I can look forward to a moment when we know eternal life and all of what is encompassed in that. 
you and I can say that we know these things about Jesus while recognizing we stand at this point in history, looking back on all these things have been revealed, and other people are going to stand at a different point in history and see even more than we saw, and we need to be okay with that because this is the moment where God has put us. Salvation is both now and future, and every step along the way from creation until the end of all things, God's people are able to interact with him based on what they know of him and looking forward to all the rest of what he's going to do. Salvation fulfills God's promises to his people. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, And coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Also, verses 9 and 10, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I believe that Peter is speaking to believers who are of Israelite Jewish descent, who in the Old Testament wandered away from God and rejected God, but now in their relationship with Jesus are fulfilling the, the beginnings of all that God intended for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Now that's also true for those of us who are of Gentile descent, and Paul makes that clear in Ephesians 2 and other places, and Romans 12 and all of these, that God basically, his intent all along was to have people called out from among the nations to serve him wholeheartedly as his people. The Israelites failed to do that, but now their descendants who have trusted in Christ, who Peter is writing to, they get the opportunity to do that, to serve God as his people who have received mercy, priests and servants of God. We who did not in the Old Testament experience that, but who have been, as Paul says in Romans added in to all of these things that God is doing in the world, we have opportunity to share in that as well. And so God keeps his promise to his people Israel, and God also shows mercy to more than just they ever anticipated in the Old Testament times. Salvation fulfills God's promises to his people. Salvation also prepares us for service. Chapter 2, verse 21 You've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. We see in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. How are you and I as sinners supposed to serve a holy God? We can't. But when we experience salvation, that prepares us that we have died to sin and we can live to righteousness, that we were strained and now we can follow God in a devoted and a focused way. We were doing our own thing. Now we're going to do what's pleasing to God. So God's true grace comes to us in salvation. God's true grace leads to holy behavior. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you know God's true grace, then what? As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. 
but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. If you've experienced God's salvation, you now have the power, by God's grace, to say no to the former lusts of the flesh that characterized our lives apart from God. Salvation also leads to fear of God through gratitude for the cost of our deliverance. Chapter 1, verse 17, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You lived in lust. You lived in wickedness. Christ died shedding what was more valuable than anything else that could have been offered to save you from what you were and make you what he wants you to be. Salvation is not stagnant. Chapter 2, therefore putting aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may remain babies the rest of your spiritual lives. No, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Salvation starts at this point and we grow and we mature and we become more and more like Jesus all along the way. We put off the lust, we see the cost of what it took to save us, and then we grow in being more and more like Jesus along the way. It transforms your life especially in the way that you relate to authorities. We already talked about this, but whether that be government, whether that be those who have rule over us in our day of, of, in the way that we work, whether that be in the context of the home and family, whatever it might be, the gospel transforms all of these daily experiences of our lives. Salvation leads to obedience. That obedience, that holy behavior, sooner or later, leads to suffering, and yet even in that suffering, we see that it's real. Chapter 3, verse 13, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. If this salvation has accomplished these great things, and we walk in the footsteps of Christ, we are going to experience the same difficulties that he did. But that, in the end, proves that we have a relationship with him if we do not lose heart. Peter wraps up, I think, by saying that God's true grace shows, or the context of it, is this love and unity with fellow Christians. We see this in chapter 1. Verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. We see this also in chapter 3, verses 8 and following. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Salvation leads to obedience, demonstrated in love toward other believers. Salvation also leads to humble service in unity. We see this in chapter 4. 
The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, do it as one who speaks the utterance of God. Whoever serves, as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And then chapter 5, what we looked at just uh, recently here. I exhort the elders, shepherd the flock of God, be examples for them. Younger men, be subject to your elders. All of you, be humble, resist the devil. Salvation leads to obedience expressed in love toward one another, humble service, side-by-side in unity, and all of this collectively leads to God's glory. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Resist what Satan is doing. Remember that God is the one who rules. Peter encourages us in all these ways to stand fast in God's true grace. Stand fast with joy through persecution. Stand fast looking to God's righteous judgment in the end. Stand fast against unbelievers who oppose the gospel. Not to stand fast in our own ideas, our own schemes, our own pride, but in God's true grace that comes through salvation transforms our lives so that we live in a holy way and is demonstrated in love and unity and humble service alongside fellow believers. And so you and I stand in the moment between when we first trusted in Jesus and when Jesus either comes back or we go to meet him. So between those two points, what's Peter's admonition to us? Stand fast in God's true grace. Don't wander away from it. Don't fight for something else. Stand fast in God's true grace. Just like Peter himself did alongside fellow workers, like he talks about here in verses 13 and 14. Silvanus, she who is in Babylon, my son Mark, all of these others, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we live in an age where it is mm, hard to be motivated to fight for things or where we are misdirected to fight for the wrong things. Hopefully we've seen, been reminded this morning and even as we've gone through this book that you call us to stand firm, that there are things worth upholding and fighting for, that there are things, they are not the things that so many people get distracted and chase after, the things that really matter that are worth fighting for. That's what we need to be focused on. That's what you're calling us to do. Help us to do that well. 
not afraid of the schemes of Satan, not afraid of the opposition of the world around us, not distracted from what it is that we're supposed to be focused on, not trying to go it solo and thinking we can do this all on our own, but united, faithful, loving, holy, all of these things ought to characterize our lives. Give us the grace to see them lived out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.